Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 26 together this evening. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we are humbled that You would care for us in such a loving and tender and intimate manner. Uh, We are filled with praise and adoration, the mercy and kindness that You have shown to us even as we reflect upon this past week in the way in which You have cared for us. Uh, Our hearts are heavy as we think about the many needs just south of us, Uh, many within uh, church extended families who are still Uh, in great need. And we pray that hearts would be humbled before you, uh, that many would be seekers of the grace that is found in the gospel alone. And we pray this night that you would give us attentive minds and hearts to the truth of Scripture, that we would grow to understand the amazing work of our Savior, and that our response would be one of humble adoration and increased love toward our God and toward our neighbor. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. You shall not wield your tool on it, lest you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Word of our God, you may be seated. Now we come tonight in our studies through the book of Exodus to a section that at first glance might seem to be a little anticlimactic given the context of what we saw last week when we were together. We've gone from this majestic display of God's power, majesty, and righteousness as He descended upon Mount Sinai. The people collectively hear the voice, that powerful voice of the Lord from on high as the Ten Commandments were given to them as a way to frame their way of life. The people are filled with fear, with trembling, pulling away from the mountain of the Lord. And they plead with Moses to be the one who speaks to them rather than God, lest they die. As covenant mediator, Moses then ventures into the thickness of the mountain, the darkness that's there. And the first thing that God says to him is what we come to in our text tonight. This teaching about idols and altars and modesty and worship and approaching Him. But I hope that in our time together tonight, we'll see that this instruction actually is important to us, that it is not anticlimactic, that it really gets at the heart or the foundation of what is needed to have a right relationship with the Lord God. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here this evening But you see, the people of Israel are to see the altar of sacrifice as central to a right relationship with the Lord, as we understand Jesus being the fulfillment of such things as the final sacrifice, the one who is central 
to a right relationship with the living God. And so what we find in this part of the book of Exodus is starting here in chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 23, the Lord is speaking to Moses from Mount Sinai, giving to him laws and instructions on how the nation of Israel should live together both now and in the generations ahead when they come into the land of promise. Now, in a sense, these ongoing laws are not additional or burdensome laws. Deuteronomy 5 verse 22 makes it clear that the Ten Commandments were written on stone and no more was to be added to the law of the Lord. But what we find here, we could think of them as provisional laws, ceremonial laws, civil laws, derived from the framework of the Ten Commandments given specifically to the nation of Israel for this particular period of history. In other words, what we find here from this portion of God's Word through chapter 23 is just the Ten Commandments applied to life together. And so this section from the book of Exodus is commonly referred to as the book of the covenant. Now, that's not a title that we just make up. We actually will see this in chapter 24 that when Moses comes down from the mountain, he takes all of this instruction that's given to him in these few chapters and writes that undoubtedly on parchment, binds it together, and this portion of God's Word is called the Book of the Covenant. And so tonight, what we're looking at is really the foundational instruction from this portion of God's Word, foundational instruction from the Book of the Covenant. And one important thing that we want to think about as we go along in these weeks ahead considering this portion from the book of Exodus is how are these things relevant and how are they applicable to my own life? Because if we're talking about civil laws and ceremonial laws that are given to the nation of Israel, we want to be thinking to ourselves, well, what relevance is there for us of these things today? Because I think there's much for us to learn about how we take the law of the Lord and apply it to our life in contemporary settings. But we also will see a great deal about how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of how much we read about these sacrifices as we go forward. So let's think first tonight with verse 22 where we read about Israel's faith to receive the word of the Lord. And so our first point tonight is this, accepting God's word as true accepting the truth of God's Word. Look again at verse 22. The Lord says to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. And notice how the Lord equates seeing and hearing. Now, in modern times, we know that all sorts of efforts have been made to undermine the veracity of God's Word. You know that efforts will continue to be made until our Savior returns to try to dismantle the truth, and the authority of Scripture, dismissing it as a a divinely inspired book and attempting to label the Bible as just a human work and nothing more. But very simply, this is the Word of God from on high, from His heavenly throne room, the living God who is separate and distinct from all of creation has spoken from the heavens, and His voice was heard by all of Israel, all who were there. And they accepted it for what it was, the very Word of God. Now, the Israelites, as some might try to make the case, they were not sort of collectively deluded, as though the nation were experiencing all at the same time a a massive hallucination 
maybe some sort of vapor leak that caused them to believe that they were hearing God from on high. These are not simply ancient, unenlightened people who can't explain natural phenomenons like earthquakes or thunderstorms and therefore attribute such things to the voice of God because they have no other logical explanation for, the, for these things. But not at all. You see, the Israelites did not doubt. They knew what it was that they heard, and they knew what they saw. They knew that it was God speaking to them, and they knew that they were obligated to obey His Word. Of course, we know that the people of God will flounder, but at this point, their response is good, and it is right, and they would be wise never to forget that God has spoken to them. In our own lives, we ought to respond similarly, shouldn't we? Responding to the Word of God as truth. Now, certainly it takes faith for us to believe that what we hold in our hands is the Word of God. But the faith that is held out to us in Scripture is not an irrational faith. It's not a faith detached from reason. It's not an anti-intellectual or naive faith. Our confession of faith in chapter 1 summarizes the attributes of Scripture. And Scripture itself testifies to the truthfulness of God's Word. Paragraph 5 of the confession there in chapter 1, again, says things like this. That we can think about the inherent weight, the weightiness that we find when we read and study the Word of God. We can think about how the instruction of God's Word guides and directs. We could all reflect upon ways in which God's Word has and continues to transform our lives testifying to its power. There is beauty in the style and the unity of Scripture with no contradictions throughout. There is the uniform message of God's Word that is all about giving glory to God. We find in God's Word the way to salvation, the salvation that gives us hope and peace. And there's the tender work of the Holy Spirit who bears witness within our own minds and hearts affirming the truthfulness of God's Word. So, in all of these ways, we too can be assured, we too can be comforted that God has spoken to us. Just as God speaks to Israel from on high, as He descends from His heavenly throne room and speaks to them, and the only proper response is to praise, worship, obey, trust, and wonder, the same ought to be true in our own lives. Again, Israel would have been wise to never forget this truth, and we would be wise in our own lives to listen to everything that God teaches us from His Word. And so this is a foundational principle that is taught to us here in the Book of the Covenant. This is a foundational principle for the Christian life. As we move on to verse 23, notice here how the Lord reminds them not to make idols of silver or gold. So our second point this evening is this. Reminders of basic commandments. Reminders of covenant basics. Again, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. And so here is another foundational thing that is laid for the children of Israel and their understanding of this book of the covenant. Now, verse 23 is really just a repeat of the first two commandments. Of course, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods in my presence, because, of course, there are no other gods in all of existence. The second commandment is, you shall not make an idol or any sort of likeness of God. 
And so verse 23 is just a repeat of the first two commandments. Then we might wonder, well, why is it here again? Well, obviously, God thought it was important to repeat. It was important for the children of Israel to hear this portion of the law again. Because these first two commandments are foundational for everything else that flows in life. It's the critical starting point for Israel to be reminded that they worship the living God alone. Nor are they to cast any images of him. You see, the whole purpose of God redeeming the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt is to create a nation of worshipers. Now, yes, he brought them from a land of slavery and a land of captivity. But remember, he also brought them from a land of idolatry, a place in which Israel was tempted and engaged in false worship. And so they are brought out of that that they might worship and serve and glorify the Lord God. And so it's no small thing to say that this is the whole purpose of their redemption. This is the whole purpose of their existence, to worship, to glorify the Lord God. And we know throughout these Old Testament narratives that Israel faces over and again this great temptation to commit grievous sin against the Lord and idolatry. It is the practice of the pagan nations around them that are constantly enticing to them. And as they permit false worship to come into their midst, it leads to this, really this slippery slope of confusion for the people, and then syncretism, and eventually abandonment of their devotion to the true and living God. I can, I can remember as a kid growing up in the church and sort of struggling to draw a connection between the idolatry of ancient Israel and what relevance that was for my own life. I don't know about you, but I was never tempted to construct a little image of silver or gold and put it on my dresser and bow down to it in any way. It just seems so foreign to me that idolatry would be something that was so enticing to ancient people. But I think we can learn to see idolatry in our own lives as we understand the underlying motives and desires of Israel, and that they're really no different than our own. You see, Israel was tempted to worship false gods because of their desire to be like the nations around them, just as we are tempted to value the same pursuits of the world around us. They were tempted to sort of diversify their worship portfolio, just in case God didn't come through and give to them the things that they thought that they needed. We too might be tempted to the things of this world for comfort, for security, for ease of life. By constructing images, that would have been a way for them to presume that it was through that image that they could control or manipulate the deity, just as we might be tempted to presume that it's our own level of spiritual maturity that grants to us greater access to God. David Pallison, he's written some very helpful things on helping the modern reader understand the connection between idolatry of old and how it continues in our own lives speaks about underlying desires of the heart. He says that idolatry is simply living your life for yourself instead of for the Lord God. Idolatry is seeking to gratify your own desires above all else, and even using things like fear and manipulation to try to get others to give you what you want, whether that's respect or obedience or control or whatever it might be. 
There is always something in my life that is driving me, some underlying motive that is shaping my desires, directing my will, feeding my identity and my purpose, something that I believe that I must have in order to be happy or complete, something that I'm looking to to find comfort or ease or significance. And if I don't get what I believe that I'm entitled to, if I don't get what I believe that I deserve to have, if I don't get what I believe I need to have, then the person or thing that is keeping me from having what I want is going to be the recipient of my anger and wrath, and I believe I'm justified in such a response. And so we might look at a verse like this and wonder, well, how could anyone bow before an image of gold or silver and presume that that would do anything for them? But how do we spend our own time maybe digesting hours upon hours of entertainment which gradually shapes our values and priorities. Maybe hours each week or even hours each day on social media looking for others to affirm us. Where are we caught up in the pursuits of this world? Just living perhaps for the next elaborate form of entertainment or looking to find significance in the approval or acceptance of others. And perhaps for some of us, we struggle to make time each day to be in the Word of the Lord and spending time in heartfelt prayer because of the many distractions that are just right there at our fingertips. And so we settle into spiritual immaturity, and we have difficulty focusing upon things of the Lord. We would rather be entertained than be in worship with God's people. And so idolatry is certainly alive and well within our own hearts. But as we heed the Word of God, as we believe His truth, as we give attention to the glories of God, we find that nothing compares to His value and to His worth, to His majesty and to His glory. The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 16, verse 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verse 8, says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. I count them all as worthless that I may gain Christ. And so the Lord tells us to root out idolatry from our own hearts because of His love for us and because He knows that there is no good apart from Him. As we move on in the text, there's actually a great deal for us to learn about this instruction that we find here regarding altars and sacrifices. So for our third point this evening in verses 24 through 26, we could think of this as instruction on worship, instruction on worship. Now, as God instructs the people on how to approach Him in worship, let's notice a few things about these verses. Notice first the Lord's kindness to provide a substitute for sacrifice. Now, what I think is important for us to notice here is that almost immediately after the giving of the law, God provides guidance on the means of forgiveness. 
because he knows full well that the people are going to violate the law of the Lord. And so sacrifices are needed to pay for sin and to reconcile the people to God. So what I find comforting here in verses 24 through 25 is that the Lord already makes provision for Israel when they violate the law. God knows his people. He knows that they will sin against him. And so he makes a way for reconciliation. Now, in a sense, this is not new because God made a way of sacrifice to enter into his presence from the very beginning when sin came into the world. Like in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord provided animal skins for Adam and Eve to wear. It was the shed blood of the substitutes covering them to allow them to stand before God. Noah in Genesis chapter 9 makes a sacrifice of praise and thanks to the Lord after the flood. As the patriarchs travel through the land of Canaan, they make altars and sacrifices to the Lord at places where he appears to them and reaffirms the covenant promises. And of course, there was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in which there was great detailed instruction given in Exodus chapter 12. And so while sacrifices in and of themselves are not new, Israel is learning more about the nature of sacrifice, sacrifice upon the altar. They will break the law, and therefore they need to understand the centrality of the altar for worship. And notice second about these verses that the Lord speaks to the type of sacrifices offered. In verse 24, he says that there are to be burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when you move into the book of Leviticus, there's more instruction on the varying types of sacrifices offered to the Lord. The burnt offering or the whole burnt offering is one in which the worshiper would place his hands upon that substitutionary animal, indicating the need for that transference of guilt, and then the entire animal would be consumed upon the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The peace offering, somewhat similar but a little different, is one in which the animal, the fat of the animal, would be sacrificed to the Lord upon the altar, while a portion of it was reserved for the worshiper to consume, to eat himself, signifying, of course, peace and fellowship that is now enjoyed with the Lord because of that substitutionary sacrifice once sin is removed. But what's important to notice here is that it is the Lord who initiates these sacrifices because of his desire to have covenant fellowship with his people. And the third thing that we learn here is about the manner of approaching God in worship. And so when sacrifices are made, we read that they are to be placed upon an altar of earth. And so perhaps what we are to envision here is dirt that is compacted together with a sacrifice placed on the top. And if stones are used, which seems to be an optional provision here, perhaps if field stones are available, those could be used to reinforce that dirt to hold the weight of the sacrifice as it is placed on top of the altar. But they are not to be hewn stones. They are not to be cut, fashioned, shaped in any way. In fact, no tools are to be used at all for these temporary altars. Now, later on, the children of Israel, we know, will be instructed on building the tabernacle and, of course, building the more permanent structure of the temple 
that will reside there in the city of David in Jerusalem. But for now, altars are to be constructed wherever the Lord causes His name to be remembered. Now, to remember the name of the Lord is to recall His kindness and His faithfulness, and it is to respond in gratitude, thanksgiving, and worship. And so, these earthen altars scattered throughout the region would be a way to bear witness to the fact that their God is an ever-present God, always with His people, and they are to remember Him always. And further, we read that there are not to be any steps leading up to the altar that their nakedness would not be exposed. Now, this instruction might seem strange to us, but all of this is to help Israel see that their worship of the Lord is to be different than the worship of the pagan nations around them, those who occupy the land of promise. So, the pagan nations would make altars that were elaborately shaped with elaborately shaped stones and with stepped pyramids called ziggurats. Archaeologists have even uncovered some ancient remnants of these structures that even predate Israel's occupation of the land of promise. Now, certainly man cannot climb to God through any steps of his own making. This, you'll remember, was part of man's desire back in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. His desire was to make a name for himself, to presume upon his own greatness. And so the temptation would be for the children of Israel to use pagan altars that were already constructed when they come into the land of promise. Why tear them down if part of the work is already done for us? Well, here's just an altar. Let's go ahead and use it for ourselves. But that would lead to syncretism. It would lead to that violation of the first two commandments that we saw earlier. And so the instruction about modesty is because the priests of the pagan cults would conduct worship in the nude. Much of Canaanite worship was fertility-oriented with sexual activity and with temple prostitution being a regular part of their liturgy. Now, we read later in Exodus chapter 28 that the priests are to wear undergarments beneath their flowing robes to add to the need for modesty. And so, all of this instruction about stones and steps and priestly coverings was important for Israel to heed so that their worship would not be confused with pagan rites. One Old Testament scholar puts it like this, the Lord is without comparison, and so no idol should ever be found in His presence, even if costly and embodying a high standard of craftsmanship they would still fall pathetically short of the living reality of the transcendent God. And so, God desires for His people to worship Him according to His Word, and they are to avoid any appearance, any appearance of idolatry and any appearance of syncretism. And one way to think of all of this is to see true worship characterized by simplicity and purity. True worship characterized by instruction from God's Word. You see, if structures were ornate with elaborate carvings, that would draw attention to the artisan himself and detract from the Lord. It would make it more about the craftsmanship 
rather than the centrality of worship being upon the Lord. If the people think that it is their effort that creates this holy or sacred space, then that might lead them to presume that they are contributing something to their salvation, that they can approach God through their own creativity or ingenuity. Psalm 24 makes it clear, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. One who has clean hands and a pure heart, but one who has been cleansed and purified through the work of the Lord Jesus. You cannot ascend upon your own work, for there is nothing that you can offer to God on your own that would be acceptable before Him. God has the right to determine how He wants to be worshipped and how we might approach Him. We are to worship God from the heart according to the Word of God. We should not alter our worship to try to fit into the culture. The church has no business adding elements to its liturgy simply for show. And something I read by Robert Godfrey this past week, he quotes from John Calvin. Calvin writes, I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. This is almost 500 years ago. Now, if that were an issue in Calvin's day, if he had difficulty persuading people that the only proper way to worship God was according to the Word of God, well, how much more in our own time, in which the church is oftentimes driven by whatever seems right in our own eyes, rather than being driven by the all-sufficient Word of truth. So I think there's a binding principle for us in all of this. I think it's worth saying again, God alone has the right to determine how we worship Him. Just as Israel is to build worship space only according to God's design, we should not be enticed by cultural concerns when it comes to worship. American evangelicalism has oftentimes reasoned that we need to make our worship more accessible to the unbeliever, appealing to the tastes and desires and preferences of the unchurched. But our conviction is that God's Word regulates our worship. And while we are certainly grateful when an unbeliever might come to our services of worship, the greatest need is for he or she to be reconciled to the living God through Christ alone, not to be made comfortable Because without reconciliation through Christ alone, there can be no true or lasting comfort. And so these are some foundational principles that are laid for us here as sort of an introduction to the book of the covenant. Trust in the Word of God and never tire of drawing upon His Word for all of life and godliness. Worship the Lord only according to His instruction, and look beyond these provisional sacrifices to the all-sufficient and final work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and marvel at what He has accomplished to grant you access to the living God. When you think of all of the details of the Old Testament sacrifices, with all of the meticulous instruction and 
the repetitive nature of those sacrifices that helps us to grow in greater wonder at what our Savior has done to restore us to our right relationship with the living God. For He is the fulfillment of all of these things because we know that the blood of bulls and goats could not remove the defilement of sin. And notice the connection. When you read through the New Testament, notice the connection that is made between the sacrificial work of Jesus and how that should be applied in the life of the believer, not only to our response of obedience to the Lord, but love toward others. Here are just a couple of texts to think about as we close tonight. Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Of course, we offer no sacrifice of atonement, but that which we offer to the Lord in terms of sacrifice is our praise and our worship, our adoration, our heartfelt obedience, our desire to love and grow in our devotion to the Lord and love for one another. So may the Lord our God be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word and these important foundational principles and to write them on the hearts of his children. Amen.